Welcome to Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL, a new series from the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation. In conversation with thought leaders and change makers in higher education, nonprofits, and industry, we'll explore why Atlanta is the innovation capital of the Southeast. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with entrepreneur Jeff Wilson, who is president and founder of 352, an innovation and growth agency focused on helping clients to find, build, and grow what's next. Located in Atlanta, Tampa, and Gainesville, 352 offers an array of services and capabilities in innovation, digital development, and growth marketing. Jeff is also the founder of Sports Card Investor, the go-to source of information and resources for investors in the sports trading card space, and the host of the podcast series by the same name. Jeff can often be found at Techstars Atlanta and Atlanta Tech Village, coaching startup founders to help them accelerate growth and achieve success. Inc. Magazine has named Jeff one of America's top 30 young entrepreneurs and his alma mater, University of Florida, recognized him as the Warrington College of Business's Young Entrepreneur of the Year. So with that, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shannon. Happy to be here. This is the first one you're doing, right? First one. Perfect. Good. Well, let's start. Let's start off with a bang. Perfect. So uh, on that note, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit uh, about 352 and the work you do. Yeah, so 352 is a digital agency that I started 20, over 20 years ago now, actually, while I was a student at the University of Florida down in Gainesville. And uh, originally started it, you know, very, very small, basically me freelancing, building simple websites for local businesses back in the late 1990s. It was a nice way to pay my way through school. Uh, but that was right during the uh, kind of beginning of the internet boom. A lot of uh, businesses were looking to get online for the very first time. So there was a lot of interest and demand for those types of services and not a lot of people who necessarily could do them. So, um, you know, I, I uh, started hiring uh, students at University of Florida to work with me part time. And by the time I graduated, a couple of years later, I had, um, I think, about eight people working for me. Um, and so it, it wasn't, didn't intend to be a full-time career uh, when I started it, but it turned into a full-time career and I decided to pursue that instead of, um, you know, what I had actually been going to college for. So, uh, so we started the company and uh, grew, you know, a lot throughout the 2000s and, you know, now 2010s, we've been added a couple of decades. Um, but we have, uh, we, we help clients these days, we help clients with innovation strategy and growth strategy. So clients that are looking to build their revenue, whether that be through, uh, you know, building and launching uh, new ventures to market digital products or scaling digital products in the marketplace through growth marketing. That's where we step in and, and help companies achieve growth. So you actually just said something that response that, that I want to follow up on briefly about, you know, not what I actually went to school for. Uh, so one of the questions we get a lot from students uh, at the hatchery has to do, <clears throat> excuse me, with, uh, you know, how do I apply what I've learned? Uh, so I have disciplinary expertise, but I need to bridge into kind of applying them in the professional world. And sometimes that's just a matter of seeing opportunity like you clearly did. But I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what you actually studied and how you made that transition besides just seeing that right opportunity. 
Well, ironically, what I studied was broadcast journalism, you know, TV news, and it's actually helping me today with my, you know, uh, uh, video show and podcast uh, around sports cards. But that's a whole separate thing, right? Um, a new a new business that I launched. But I, for many years, didn't you know didn't apply those skills. Um, the way that you traditionally would. But one thing that I like, uh, you know, I would encourage um, students to try to study skills in, in college that could be applicable in other ways. Uh, and, you know, for example, broadcast journalism is a great thing to study because even if you don't go into actually truly doing TV or news, the public speaking skills, the presentation skills, confident on your feet, confident having to change make change at the last minute and do things on the fly like those are great skills that you can apply forward to whatever career you possibly pursue and so hopefully whatever you know everybody's studying there are certain things you can draw out from that that could be applied more universally that's great um so anyone visiting your website is going to see not just the capabilities of 352 but also a set of really clearly defined values uh, that are intended to create both a cohesive work culture within 352 and really uh, you know, help your clients to succeed. So because you put them up front, I'm gonna foreground them here, which is everything starts with inspired people, teams do it best, embrace change, show some grit, be candid and celebrate wins. So I'm wondering if you can kind of talk a bit about how you arrived at this set of values and how you put them into action when you do work for your clients. Yeah, so with any company, building and maintaining a great culture is really important to success. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of business speakers and business books all about company culture. And I will tell you that culture really does make a big difference. Culture, culture is often what will get employees to stay if it's good or what will cause employees to leave if it's bad. And it's oftentimes more important than even you know maybe how you're doing financially or compensating someone financially if people really love the culture and they feel like they're being treated well and it's a great place to work then they're going to be encouraged to stay you know through good times through bad times all that type of thing um the question though becomes when you're bringing people into the organization how do you how do you intentionally set culture and when you're bringing people into the organization how do you bring people in who are going to share the same culture values that that you want right and so I think one way you can do that is by establishing your own values as an organization, just defining what you value. And then as you're looking at others to come into the organization or for those who are in the organization, when explaining to them what makes a really good employee, what makes a really good team member, you can use those values as something you can point back to in reference to and say, hey, this is, this is what, we, what we look for and respect. You know, values have to be unique to your organization's kind of ethos and, and what's important to the organization and what's needed for the organization. Um, you know, we've got some values that might be, you know, a little different than what you might hear from other companies. Like one, for example, uh, be candid. Um, that's important to us because we do, we do work with a, a lot of clients and we're, you know, we're a consultative partner. We're kind of a consultant for a lot of our clients. And so we want to, you know, one thing we pride ourselves in is being candid and, and having honest conversation with the client and saying, hey, look, this is this is not going to work for this reason or or, you know, this needs to change for this reason. And so that's an important value. It's also an important value internally for people to be candid with each other about how they can improve 
uh, you know, give, give uh, constructive feedback when necessary, that type of thing. So that's something we try to encourage as an organization. And, you know, whatever, whatever are those things that are, are important to the success uh, of your company and that you need your employees to really embrace and really love. I think you can, I think you can surface that through values and, and explaining, uh, and, and that it just helps set the story for the common links between the people in your organization that are the ones who are most successful. So one of the things that we've really seen here at the hat tree this year in particular is that uh, your values end up really manifesting programmatically as well. Uh, you end up doing the things that you value. And uh, I'd like to just state for the record that I've long been an admirer of the series uh, off, 352's conversation series off the record, uh, which is a forum where Atlanta Innovation Community convenes to hear unique and unscripted stories from local innovation leaders. and. Uh, while I was working on culture of innovation programs at Turner Classic Movies, I'd often hop over uh, to your, your Midtown offices, and it's probably where we first met um, there and through some connections that were working on some similar problems, um, ask guests questions and really kind of just soak up that environment. And uh, you've managed to really keep this series going strong virtually. To be honest, in some ways, the show that we're uh, we're launching today with you here is is meant to be a kind of a complement to that effort because a lot of your guests are industry folks, and we thought we could invite a lot of folks from higher education, nonprofits as well, and uh, so it's a pleasure, first of all, to have you on the guest uh, as our first guest on the show, and in that optic, I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about Off the Record and how you believe it's been important to three five two and to the Atlanta innovation community. Well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm honored that you've used a bit of the, you know, concept of off the record into, into what you're trying to build out as well. I think that's wonderful. Um, so when I, story goes back probably about three or four years ago, when we uh, had a number of client projects where we were doing some pretty interesting work for, uh, for companies in Atlanta that were doing innovative things. And so for people within those companies who consider themselves innovators. Mm -hmm. And as we were thinking about like, how do we, how can we get more clients like the ones that we enjoy working with who seem to be these innovative minded individuals at companies throughout Atlanta. And as we began to think about how might we meet more people like these people and, and go get more clients like these people, we kind of realized that there was not a organization or a networking event or any type of club or or reason or or, or vehicle for these people to assemble uh, which is unusual because if you're a marketer there's a lot of clubs there's the you know american marketing association and there's a lot of you know the the um you know they got uh uh interactive marketing chapter here in atlanta you got a lot of different marketing clubs marketing chapters probably at emory university i'm sure they have several as well and then you have a bunch of professional ones if you're into you know technology if you're a developer you know there's there's plenty of you know there's the technology association of georgia and there's plenty of clubs and and, and associations that deal with technology in various aspects but there really wasn't one that dealt with innovation and so we said, okay, well, if, if that's, that's missing, uh, but we believe that a lot of people would like to be part of something like that, and, and then, then perhaps we need to be the ones to help create that and to help bring that community together. And so that's what we did. We, we started by calling it 
the um, Enterprise Entrepreneurship Series. That was what we first started calling it. And then we changed the name to Off the Record uh, after a couple of years because we wanted to be able to go a little bit wider, not just like, you know, not just attract people from big enterprises, but, but attract a little bit more of the innovation ecosystem, uh, students, companies of all sizes and types uh, for a candid conversation around what uh, innovation was actually like within companies. And that's why we call it off the record as well, because we want to kind of uh, promote that idea of candid conversations around innovation, because the truth of the matter is innovation is a exciting word. It's a fun word. It's a sexy word, but it's also really difficult. And especially if you're trying to innovate within a larger organization, it's really difficult. Uh, and we can, you know, that's a whole nother topic for for all the reasons why it's difficult. But but it's it's a tough job, and I'm sure you experienced some of that, Shannon. You know, you know, being within Turner, uh, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing within a large organization to innovate. So we felt like, um, you know, we felt like if we could, uh, we wanted to encourage candid conversation where people wouldn't just, you know, share the success stories, but would also share the challenges. And and, and you know, because oftentimes you can learn more from those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, to your point, it's an entirely different conversation, but an interesting one. There's obviously uh, a desire with established organizations to see this sort of hockey stick growth you see with smaller organizations, but while maintaining a lot of their kind of cultural uh, or organizational stability. And that's a it's a tough mix, uh, in addition to, to, as you say, a whole lot of other challenges. Um, I'd love to sort of uh, pick up on uh, the, the mention you made of this innovation ecosystem that, uh, that exists across the city. And uh, there are a couple of questions I think about uh, Atlanta and innovation that would be interesting. But I want to start by just saying that it seems that Atlanta has really become uh, you know, a national business center and truly international city, as well as a, a driver of economic, demographic, cultural diversity within the state. What do you think are the really unique attributes of the city that have impacted your work as an innovator and an entrepreneur? Yeah, um, when, so I moved to Atlanta about six years ago and I, my company, uh, 352, we had, we, I founded it obviously in Gainesville, Florida, as I talked about earlier, but we had expanded up to Atlanta with a smaller office, more so kind of doing sales out of Atlanta. And we had also expanded down to Tampa and um, my wife and I were eager to get to a larger city and, and do that type of thing. Um, and we finally decided that uh, once, because our Atlanta office and our Tampa office were starting to grow. And so we finally decided in 2014, that was the opportunity. And we explored both Atlanta and Tampa, you know, cause those were two logical places for us to go with my company being there. And um, I was blown away by the Atlanta ecosystem. Um, it was, it was, very a very strong ecosystem in my opinion when it came to technology when it came to startups when it came to enterprises there's so many aspects of atlanta that are really rich resource wise uh you know much you know frankly much more so than anything i saw down in florida and that's and you know florida's got a lot of great stuff happening as well uh you know i'm obviously a big supporter of gainesville and tampa and other cities in florida but i mean atlanta in terms of the size of the ecosystem and the depth of the ecosystem and frankly dwarfs anything else in the Southeast. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was an easy decision from that standpoint to come up here. The, you know, what you have here is you have an abundance of 
startup centers, you have an abundance of, you know, startups, you have, you, you have, you know, a, a lot of, of funding sources here. You have a lot of incubators, you have a lot of startup programs, obviously, you know, uh, you know, what you're doing with Emory being one of those. Um, you have a lot of, um, you also have a lot of enterprises. In fact, Atlanta's got the second most Fortune 500 headquarters out of any city yeah. in the United States, which is for a company like ours, that can be big too. You know, when you, you know, if you're trying to sell to larger companies, then you want to be near the headquarters of a lot of other large companies, and Atlanta offers that as well. So, uh, there were a lot of things Atlanta offered. A a benefit uh, that you know a lot of people maybe don't, maybe it doesn't come immediately to their mind, but a benefit that I I quickly learned was really, really critical was the airport. Because uh, from Atlanta, obviously, with it being the busiest airport in the world, you can get just about anywhere in the United States and back in a day if you need to. So for any type of business travel that you're trying to do, being in a city like Atlanta, it makes it possible to do at such, such a more rapid pace and more conveniently than trying than being in a city that is a smaller city where a lot of their flights have to pass through Atlanta, right? So, I mean, and, and that type of thing actually makes a big difference um, just to the efficiency of your operation if travel is part of it, if go, you know, flying out to client meetings and everything are part of it. Obviously, this year, huh. not doesn't matter as much, but in years past, it, that has made a pretty big difference for us as well. Um, I want to sort of address this question of all the strengths of Atlanta and how ultimately they can also be a liability. Uh, I heard um, Alex Gonzalez speak, um, who is, of course, the chief innovation officer for Metro Atlanta Chamber. And I believe it was at an off the record uh, in the last year or two. And he spoke about how the city has this incredibly vibrant innovation ecosystem and entrepreneurship ecosystem, like you've said, but that that actually leads to something of a brand problem. Um, because uh, to paraphrase his argument, the city is a leader in so many sectors, transportation, government, construction, education, finance, uh, healthcare and biomedical, media communications, and, and so the list goes on, that it probably doesn't receive enough credit for driving innovation in any one of these, whereas a place like Silicon Valley has just such a clear brand. So in that optic, I'm curious what you see as the sectors where Atlanta's efforts, um, either current standing or their efforts in innovation and entrepreneurship really deserve to be known around the world and what you think we all can do as innovators and entrepreneurs to help build that reputation and spread the word. Well, um, I mean, I think what Alex said is, is true. I also think it's a good problem to have. Yep. You know, I mean, you'd rather be good at too many things than, you know, good at, at good at, you know, just one thing or something of that nature. Um, I, you know, so, I mean, I would suggest that a lot of the advantage of Atlanta is the richness of the fact that you have so many different things that Atlanta is particularly good at. I mean, there's so many different types of companies here. I mean, you didn't even mention, for example, like the film industry or, you know, or, 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 you know, shipping and logistics, or, I mean, the list could go on and on with the tight, with the, you know, companies that are playing in all of these different spaces. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I think that that's obviously, you know, part of the richness of Atlanta. Uh, another thing, you know, if you want to talk about a unique advantages, obviously Atlanta has uh, the opportunity to be the most diverse uh, city in the world in terms of leadership of businesses and startups and all that type of thing. Obviously, the city of Atlanta 
has an extremely diverse population. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's more and more programs and opportunities that are being set up here that are focused on that, that are focused on pr promoting diversity in uh, the startup community, promoting diversity in technology. It really, all that comes down to is giving, giving everybody a chance to succeed and helping fuel those initial successes. Um, and that's true, whether it's, uh, you know, a diverse, um, whether it's a minority founder or really any founder in general, having the ecosystem strong enough to give founders the opportunity to succeed for the first time uh, is a, it's a huge thing because then once a founder has success, then they're able to give back to the ecosystem. So the ecosystem can kind of build upon itself. If you have a string of, you know, those initial successes, then, then it, it kind of snowballs from there. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, the city itself becomes a, uh, a startup flywheel effect, right? Where people are constantly feeding back into the system. Um, as a follow-up to that, what Atlanta experiences or resources would you encourage other innovators and entrepreneurs to seek out? Yeah, well, one thing the city is certainly rich in is the number of uh, startup programs, incubator programs, you know, everything of that nature. I mean, obviously, um, you know, Emory is getting into that game under, you know, with your leadership, Shannon. Um, and there's there's a multitude of different programs. I mentor at Atlanta Tech Village, um, and in previous classes have mentored at TechStars, and those are both excellent programs. But they're just some. Uh, they're just a few of of many many excellent programs in the city. Our office here at 352, we're located um, in Tech Square. We're right next to ATDC, and they've got their own set of programs, which are really good and helpful for for people getting started. I think it's important for people to identify, you know, kind of what level you're at in your journey. If you're a new entrepreneur with a new idea that's pursuing something for the first time, then go seek out programs that are oriented towards you. A lot of these startup centers will have different levels of programs for different levels of entrepreneurs. ATDC has that. They've got their kind of introductory level where um, you pay a very nominal fee, and then it's a lot of education and training and those types of events. And then if you if your startup be becomes established and starts growing, then you can move up to their greater levels where you can actually, excuse me, become part of the program and get office space and all that kind of thing. Um, Atlanta Tech Village does uh, different, you know, cohorts and sessions throughout the course of the year that are, you know, startup school type sessions that are, that are oriented at um, newer founders, younger founders, people who are, getting going for the first time. Uh, once you're more established, then maybe you take up whole office space in there and you seek out one-on-one -on -one mentorship, uh, you know, and that type of thing. So identify where you are in your journey. And then there's a multitude of resources. Uh, you just have to seek them out. Uh, it's a great note, just sort of looking through the list of people who are in attendance today. We've got someone who runs entrepreneurship programs for Guizueta. We have someone who runs uh, Amelia, thank you, jumping in and saying hello. We've got uh, someone here who runs a neuromodulation uh, innovation lab. Uh, we have someone who's running uh, programs to try to help people in the humanities to innovate. So, uh, you know, it's a great, to your point, um, it, there are so many different subsets and ecosystems within Atlanta, and it's ultimately a great strength. Um, I'd like to change gears for a second from Atlanta innovation to innovation itself. 
um, because I think there's a kind of common misconception with the general public that innovation is really about a big idea or an aha moment, uh, when in fact, uh, you know, so much of the work is about process. So from careful customer discovery and crafting of a good problem statement on the micro level to really kind of ensuring alignment of strategy, metrics, resources, and culture at the macro level. What do you see as the biggest keys to success in innovation? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's those things for sure. And it's the ability to iterate. I mean, we have a saying that we say sometimes here at 352, that is innovation is 99% iteration. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's infrequent that your first idea that you, you know, kind of plan out uh, and that you go to market with is actually what's going to end up being successful for you or maybe the general you know maybe the general idea will be what's successful but the the mechanisms that you thought by which it would be successful are probably going to look completely different than what you think you know what you think they are today and so uh for me the key to innovation and the key to entrepreneurship honestly is getting started and getting going and getting out there i think that I think that people have the tendency to spend too much time often in business planning, research, um, you know, uh, uh, strategy sessions, all that type of thing. And you often learn the most from doing something and getting it out there. If you want to, you know, Seth Godin always says, if you want to learn how to ride a bike, don't take a class, you know, don't watch a video, don't have a strategy session don't do you know customer research get on a bike get mm -hmm. on a bike that's the best way to learn how to you know ride a bike right i mean you know uh and so and that's what that's what running a startup often often is and, and yes there's value in those other things i mean you don't want to go into a completely blind I, i'm not suggesting that but but there's been you know the entrepreneurship has has there's been a lot of thought advancement in this way and i'll give you one example i remember when i was going through college 20 years ago it was taught incorrectly, in my opinion, that if you wanted to start a business venture, if you wanted to do a startup or something of that nature, that you needed to create a whole business plan. And back then, the definition of a business plan was like a you know, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 page written document that had all of these sections about marketing strategy and, and you know, customer segmentation and all these different things. Well, that's evolved and kind of some of the newer thinking around that now is, is use something like the business model canvas, right? Which is a, it's essentially, a, you can do it on a single sheet of paper. Now it, it still forces you to do what's really important, which is spend some critical thought around every aspect of the business to ensure that you are putting some thought into what your strategy is going to be. But you can do it on a single page mm -hmm. and then you can put it into action more quickly and you can start to see what happens and you can start to make adjustments versus the old thought of like, no, let's spend half a year or a year writing out an 80 page business plan. Mm -hmm. Um, because you just, you just don't know until you get into the marketplace. So for me, it's about getting going. It's about, and then it's about being willing to, uh, adjust, pivot, change, iterate, uh, based upon what you're hearing when you're out there in the market. 
So yeah, I think you, you may have largely answered the next question I was going to ask, uh, because you've already mentioned business model canvas and then just the process of, you know, adjusting, pivoting, iterating. But I do wonder, are there any particular sort of innovation processes that you've found to be particularly particularly useful, sorry, I'll get that word out, or do you think it's really a matter of the situation? Um, you know, so are you a fan of, uh, of human-centered design or of lean, or does it really depend on what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, human-centered design and lean, yeah, I think they're both very important, but I mean, they, I mean, you can, you can boil those concepts down really succinctly by saying human-centered design is, is really just simply about understanding and listening to your customer or your potential customer in the future, whoever might use whatever it is you're trying to create. Yeah. And lean is really about building something and getting it in their hands as quickly and as lightweight as possible to get their feedback and to allow them to play around with it and then to continue to build from there. So they're relatively easy concepts at their core uh, but they're both very important concepts and they're both, you know, but they're, they're, but they're also very simple concepts, which is, which is, you know, nice for people to be able to kind of remember and execute. Sure. Um, you know, in terms of a, a particular framework or a process or something like that, um, I like, you know, if I had to kind of pick one, I really like Google Ventures uh, design sprint process. It is a, uh, the, the design sprint process. There's a book written about it called Sprint. It's a, it's a five day process that is really built around um, testing an idea, testing a, a product idea, business idea, new feature, whatever it is, testing something out and, and getting to some conclusion within five days. And it's, it's about, um, you know, very concentrated five day effort where you start by learning, you know, learning about uh, who this is for and, and what, what you're trying to achieve with it. And then you build out a lightweight prototype to put in their hands, maybe something that's not even functional. It may just be sketches or, or whatever, something to get them to be able to react to. And then you have a group of people come in and react to it and get feedback and observe what they're saying. And then at the end of the week, you draw conclusions in terms of, okay, here's what we learned. And I, you know, this is what this means. And then this would be, you know, our next steps from here. And what I like about it is it, forces you into action and it's time boxed to five days, which often is very important because again, my bias is towards uh, action and to, and to getting out there and, and, and doing something. And so I think, you know, often time boxing yourself and saying like, okay, I'm, I'm only giving myself five days to, to get to the next step in, step in this can be important. Because oftentimes, you know, oftentimes, sometimes you need constraints like that in order to really uh, catalyze what you're doing, to, in, in order to give it a spark, in order to push it forward. You almost have to, to have force constraints. Force constraints can oftentimes uh, create creativity. So uh, it's funny, I, I can't help but avoid a quick side note on this. I actually ended up in, in innovation through a PhD in French literature, which is not something most people will say, but I studied a group uh, that really was all about creating literary constraints in order to stimulate the writer's productivity and process. And it ended up leading me down a whole series of pathways that ultimately led you know, in a non-direct uh, fashion to where I am. So yeah, I, I completely agree that the question of constraint 
um, and using process in a rigorous but uh, dynamic way is really important. And you have to do something in order to know. It can't be process for process sake. Um, you might have seen me casting around too, as you mentioned Sprint, because I, I usually have a copy at my desk next to me. It looks like somebody borrowed it. Uh, great book and great process. So uh, speaking of process, I'm wondering if uh, uh, you could sort of uh, give us an example of a time when you've been able to apply one of these processes or a sprint um, to creating a new venture or, or maybe some sort of broader systemic change that you are really proud of and would want to sort of uh, call attention to. Sure, yeah, I'll give you um, I'll give you a couple examples uh, from my own entrepreneurial career. So um, back in uh, back in the late 2000s, uh, 2007, 2008. Um, my wife and I decided to start a new venture that was we created a online football themed virtual world for kids. And this was when virtual worlds were kind of in vogue, like Second Life. And there were some kids ones like Webkins and Club Penguin and that type of thing. So this was, you know, about 12, 13 years ago. And um, and we wanted to create a football theme one. And we had kind of a very grandiose concept for it. We ended up um, partnering uh, with we, we got endorsements and, and partnered with some really big name people. We got Pete Carroll who right now is the Seattle Seahawks coach, Super Bowl winning coach, back then was the coach of you know USC. Uh, we got Steve Spurrier, old Florida Gator coach, and he was the coach of the South Carolina Gamecocks at the time. Uh, Phil Fulmer, the old Tennessee coach. Yeah. So another, uh, you know, Charlie Weiss. We had a number of big names who got involved with the project. And we spent two years building a really incredible, comprehensive online video game for kids that we sunk uh, almost a million dollars into the development of, and we launched it into the marketplace and it was a complete and total flop, total failure, <laughs> lost everything, lost it all. And we said, gosh, that was rough. That was horrible. Uh, spent three years of our life, you know, a lot of, a lot of focus on that and, and, and a lot of money obviously, and it completely blew up. And what happened was during the two years we spent building the product, uh, a lot of things changed from the time we started to the time we actually finished. Um, first of all, we had uh, companies like the, uh, the NFL decided to build out and launch their own kids themed virtual world video game called NFL Rush Zone, which still exists to this day. Uh, a Silicon Valley startup got $14 million of funding to build their own sports themed virtual world called uh, Action All-Stars, which launched uh, right around the same time our, ours did. There were several others. Um, at the same point in time, Apple decided that they were going to um, stop supporting Flash uh, as they wanted to move people towards um, you know, their, their devices like the iPhone and the iPad that were coming out then. And so um, our whole thing was built in Flash. And then kids started to show a strong preference to moving away from computer gaming and moving towards, you know, iPad, tablet, that type of thing, which ours wasn't compatible with. And, um, and also when kids finally started playing the game, we found that a lot of the things that, the, that we had spent months on, the kids didn't care about at all, or it was too confusing for them. 
And then the, the silly little things we spent like a few days on were actually the things the kids thought were the best. Um, so it was a very frustrating experience, but being a kind of a serial entrepreneur, my wife and I said, let's, let's do the next one. And so we started another company and this time, uh, it was, uh, the concept was a building out a, uh, social media management software product that was going to be for, uh, TV stations, journalists, newsrooms. Uh, because that's what I and her had majored in. We met back in college uh, in the campus newsroom and she actually went into it as a career. So she had been in the newsrooms for many years and had a concept for how back then, I mean, this was now we're talking 2009. This was before most journalists were on social. Facebook had emerged, Twitter was just emerging. TV stations had no idea what to do with it. Uh, print publications had no idea what to do with it. And so she said, I think I could build out a whole tool set that would help them utilize social media. So we said, okay, let's, let's not do what we did with the video game, which was a disaster. Let's instead give ourselves 300,000 or let's give ourselves three months and let's give ourselves $50,000. And if we cannot prove some form of interest or traction, in three months with $50,000, we're gonna kill the idea. We got to the end of the three months and we had a somewhat janky, but working initial beta version of this. And she got two customers to agree to beta test it and their feedback uh, started coming back very good. So we said, okay, we're now willing to put in another $50,000 in another three months. During that time period, we got, we got along a little further and she actually got two people to start paying for it. And we said, okay, now we're willing to put in another six months and another hundred thousand dollars, which we did. And then in that time period, we got to the point where she had 11 people paying. We ended up starting to not, we actually ended up not needing any more money beyond that initial $200,000. And we started to, you know, we started to build traction. Um, fast forward to today and the company social news desk is the largest uh, social media provider in the journalism space. 85% uh, of the TV news newsrooms in North America manage their Facebook and Twitter and Instagram presence through the social news desk software. Um, it's it's you know widely used by most major media publications, all that type of thing. So um, obviously a huge success. Ended up getting acquired by a Fortune 500 company big success, totally different story, right? Mm -hmm. And the and the real difference between the two stories is the second time we took a lean approach, mm -hmm. the second time we took a customer centric approach, the second time we limited what we were willing to put into it, which forced our creativity, which forced our speed, which forced us to get the hands in, you know, get the thing in people's hands quickly. What we got in their hands was not perfect. It was it was a little a little janky, but it gave us the opportunity to actually see what was good about it, what wasn't good about it, what needed improvement. It allowed us to make iteration. And uh, as a result, we were able to navigate that thing to be much more successful. And of course, because we got it out quicker, we also stayed ahead of the market instead of building it for two years and letting other competitors emerge, you know, and all that kind of thing during that time period. So definitely, definitely uh, some, you know, some pretty key differences there. And ever since, I've always tried to use that lean iterative approach um, whenever launching a new venture.
Um, it's interesting, it's rare that two such illustrative case studies can't come from the same person back to back. Um, you know, I think people tend to get caught in patterns um, and, uh, you know, rarely do people adopt so quickly and, and you know, and profoundly. Um, so that it's a great story. I just wonder if we could end uh, maybe on one other success story, which is that this year or within the last year, year and a half, you launched Sports Card Investor, which is also seeing uh, you know a good uptick in growth and a lot of traction. Could you tell us a bit about sort of the the need you saw and how you went about solving for it? Yeah, that's been that's been an, it's been crazy this year. It's been it's one of those. I, uh, you know, COVID is such an interesting thing because it's affected so many industries in different ways. It's not like a normal economic hit, right? Because like, you know, when you saw the housing crisis in 2008, everything like that, almost every industry was negatively affected, right? It, the economy as a whole came down. COVID has been this odd mix of hurting, hurting a lot of things, but also helping a lot of things. And one of the things that it really helped was uh, people's hobbies, people's collecting, people staying at home and wanting entertainment and all that type of thing. And it kind of came together with a perfect storm. Now, this story started pre-COVID. This story started last, uh, a couple of years ago now when, you know, I used to be a big uh, baseball card collector and enthusiast when I was a kid um, and then didn't pay any attention to baseball cards, sports cards for many, many years. And then a couple of years ago, my son uh, got old enough where he was kind of getting interested and in, in, I guess some of his you know friends or whatever were getting cards. And so um, he got some football cards and he, he was with his grandmother and got some football cards. And, um, and so I was going through them with him and I was like, you know, I, I haven't seen football cards. I didn't even know they made them anymore. I hadn't seen football cards in 30 years. And, and I was going through them and I'm like, huh, I'm like, these are, this is a little different now than this used to be when I was a kid. And there's a million reasons why it's different. And that's, you know, probably a whole nother show. But I started saying, you know what? I bet these are going to become really big again. I bet this is going to become huge again, just like it did in the late 1980s and early 1990s when I was a kid. And there were a lot of reasons why I thought that to be true. But I said, I think this can be really big. And I think people are going to actually, I think adults more than kids, I think adults now, my age, people who did it as kids, are going to get back into this. And I think they're going to start collecting again, and they're going to start, uh, and they're actually going to go as far as seeing this as an alternative investment vehicle. And that perhaps instead of buying shares of, you know, Apple stock, maybe people would buy 1986 Michael Jordan rookie cards and see that as an alternative, you know, investment opportunity uh, for some of their money. And so I started, so I wanted to, again, take a lean approach. And I didn't know what channel was going to work best and how this thing was going to grow. And I had a bunch of business ideas, but I said, let me start simply by putting out some content and seeing if people consume this content. Because if I put out some content and people consume it, then that starts to prove true that there are other people who see this and care about this. And maybe there's a whole market here for me to do things with. If I put content out, and no one consumes it and it kind of falls flat on his face, then maybe I've, I've disproven the market and, um, and I won't further pursue investment. So I started last summer by putting out the summer, you know, of 2019 
by putting out some YouTube videos and by putting out also uh, a website, a blog website. And I also put out a podcast. So I tried a few different formats just to see, because again, I didn't know quite know, I didn't know the content was going to work. I also didn't know how the content was going to work, if it was going to work. So I tried a few different methods. The YouTube show immediately took off. The website did okay. The podcast did okay, but the YouTube show really gained steam. So I said, okay, there's something here. So I started investing in the YouTube show, mainly just time, you know, mainly just time, a little bit of money for production, but mainly just time. And it started growing, you know, a thousand, a thousand subscribers, 2000 subscribers, 5,000 subscribers, 10,000 subscribers. I said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, you know, I'm onto something here. Right. And so then I said, now I'm going to start to turn this into a business. And so the first thing I did was I built out a digital um, platform for essentially tracking the prices of sports cards. And also you can enter in your own collection and track your own collection through there and, and, and how that's going up and down in value and all that type of thing. It's got a lot of really kind of in-depth features around all that kind of stuff. I launched that in February. It's called Market Movers. And then I used my YouTube channel to promote it. I did no paid advertising, zero paid advertising. To this day, haven't done any paid advertising at all and have scaled market movers from about zero to about $2 million uh, in annual recurring revenue over the course of from February through today. By the way, during COVID, which actually helped fuel the growth of it. It It would have grown without COVID, but COVID helped it grow faster. Because uh, people being home, people looking looking back through old sports cards they owned, people collecting, wanting to buy things and, and be entertained with hobbies at home during COVID, the sports card market took off like crazy. And so, you know, my software took off like crazy along with it. So, um, yeah, so that's been that venture. And now I've got 15 people working for me and we're gearing up for you know, an incredible amount of projects and initiatives, which we want to tackle in 2021 related to that as well. Wow. Uh, and again, this is such an interesting case study, not because, not only because it illustrates a, a smart application of lean, but you leverage your background in media and broadcasting to create the media. Uh, and by pushing it in various platforms, you're also doing a, you know, you're, you're testing your market. Uh, but you're learning about a lot about your market indirectly by which medium really resonates. So that's, it's really interesting to hear that story. Um, there are some great questions coming in from the audience too. So uh, let me uh, start to raise those. Um, one question was about the Google Sprint process that you mentioned and how is the proprietary nature of any concept, idea, system or startup protected in that kind of process? Well, I mean, okay, so a couple thoughts. First of all, I'm not a big believer in proprietary ideas. Yeah. I- ideas are a dime a dozen. Whatever idea you have for your startup, 88 other people have the same idea somewhere else. And who's going to win is often not who has the best idea, but it's who executes the best. Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to. So I'm not a huge believer in protecting ideas. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, that doesn't mean that you, you know, you, you, you shouldn't take some reasonable protections. That doesn't mean that you should just go scream your idea on the street corner so all of your competitors can hear it. But in general, it's often not the idea that wins. And, and, I, and so like people with really early stage startup ideas, 
that think like the idea is everything and, and they can't tell the idea to anybody, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. You, you should tell the idea to people because that's how you're going to get feedback and that's how you're going to learn. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's going to be more beneficial to tell that idea than it is to try to protect that idea. Um, you know, because the chances of it getting ripped off and stolen, again, it doesn't matter. It comes down to execution. So out execute, that's how you win. Mm-hmm. Okay. But with that, with that aside, how do you protect yourself during that type of thing? I mean, obviously, you know, you could have, uh, you know, non-disclosures in place with the people who you bring in to do the testing with, uh, the Google, Google sprint process. You can run that whole process with just, you know, a, a, a couple of team members working on it and then maybe bringing in, you know, five to seven people from the outside at various points during it. It doesn't have to be a huge group that you expose to whatever it is you're working on. Uh, and you can put NDAs in place and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, another great question about uh, sort of investment and innovation in this moment. Uh, so a lot of companies are cutting costs generally at this juncture because of uh conditions related to COVID. What are you observing as far as discretionary spend on innovation at the moment? Because it seems important, uh, the person mentioned, in order to kind of invest in uh, recovery after the recession. But what's happening in reality that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, the reality that we're seeing is that the number of clients that want to pursue what we call like transformative innovation, so innovation that's kind of far out, like longer term, longer horizon, brand new areas, that kind of stuff that has, that has dropped significantly. And as a result of that, it's, it's hurt our business. Some, you know, three, five, two, our, our, our clients have dropped back somewhat because they're not pursuing that type of innovation as much anymore. Now, what they're doing instead is they're trying to figure out how to take whatever their core business is and make it work in this digital world. They're trying to, they're trying to go digital for a lot of companies. It's trying to figure out uh, what their sales and marketing strategy is going to be if their sales and marketing strategy used to rely on a lot of in-person events and interaction. That's been tough. Um, a lot of companies rely on trade shows heavily um, or you know networking events, that type of thing in order to sell, in order to market. Well, that's all gone. So the opportunities have shifted. They're still there, but they've shifted from more of the longer term innovation to helping companies kind of rethink and retool their short-term strategies uh, in order to be able to grow and scale in this kind of new digital virtual you know world that we're currently living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, already there was a trend towards trying to uh, figure out that's kind of H2 digital translation of whatever your core offering was. Um, and so in a sense, you could say that COVID just accelerated what was bound to happen in some ways. We're in an increasingly digital world. Yeah. Uh, so one additional question says, um, you sound like you're uh, comfortable bailing on an idea. What are people saying to themselves when they aren't killing an idea? And how would you encourage those folks uh, to let an idea go, or at least part of an idea go? Yes. You know, that's, that's, a, that is, that's a difficult thing to know. I mean, part of it comes through experience, but it, it's it is there's there's two ways that you can look at it and you can debate yourself on it at any point in time one you could you could look at something something that's not yet successful you could look at it and say you just haven't given it enough time you just got to continue to keep at it you're in the dip and and seth godin writes uh, he's got a book called the dip where it's all about um entrepreneurs and startups that gave up too early that gave up 
without, if they had pushed through for another six months or something like that, they would have ended up on the other side and they would have ended up figuring it out and gone on and doing really big things, but they gave up a little bit too early. Mm -hmm. I've seen that before. I saw there's a startup at Atlanta Tech Village that I am invested in that has got, done really, really well where the founders or at least one of the founders was giving up on the business, like had had enough it wasn't successful enough, was giving up on the business and was literally ready to quit. And I had to talk the founder off the edge because I saw signs, really promising signs. I saw sales interest. I saw people, people responding to marketing that they, that they were putting out. I saw people that seemed interested in this. And so to me, it was, you don't have a sale yet because you probably are dealing with a really long, difficult sales cycle. And you're probably also dealing with a customer base that is all anxious and worried about being your first customer. But once you get your first customer and once you get over the hump, this is gonna get a lot easier. And then I think you're gonna get customers two through 10 quickly thereafter. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And, and, and thank God they stuck with it mm -hmm. because they would have shut down what would have been a very, very successful business right before they became very, very successful. So there's that side of it. But then on the other side, I met plenty of founders who have been at things for three or four years and they're not seeing traction and they are, are trying to shift and shift and shift again. And they don't have clear focus. And, and, and I have to look at them and be, and say like, Hey, you gotta kill this. Like you gotta, you gotta move on. Like this is, this is, You've been at this like what is the market's telling you something you know you've been at this for four years the market's telling you something you know and so mm -hmm. unfortunately knowing the difference between the two can be a challenge and it can be a nuance and so the best advice that i can give is is you know truly at, like what are the early indicators of success or of traction it's not mm -hmm. sales because sales can sometimes be a lagging indicator right Oftentimes the early indicators are customer interest, the number of leads, the number of sales conversations, the number of people that are truly showing real genuine interest, not just people who are like, oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, maybe someday, maybe I'll buy that. And they're just kind of placating you. But no, the number of people that actually have asked for proposals, contracts that you've actually done demos in that have given you very legitimate reasons for why they can't move forward at that moment but they really legitimately genuinely seem interested. Those are, those are, those are, you know, early indicators could even be like the number of people that are clicking on your digital ads or, the, or that type of thing. Um, if you see that early traction, then it, it, it often is just a matter of time and a matter of repetition before things finally start to come together. But if you don't see enough early traction and you've been at it for a while, then you're, you're, probably not going to be successful. Right. So I, it's, it's just the nuance of, of understanding what indicators are going to kind of help prove or not prove that early traction. Uh, well, speaking of early traction and when it's time to sort of uh, put something to rest or uh, move on, uh, I would like to keep talking all day. Uh, and this is our first episode and there've been great questions coming in from the, uh, the audience. Uh, but we should probably wrap. I think we're at the hour. And uh, I just want to say what a pleasure it was to uh, have you on the show, not only because all the insights you provided for people who are interested in starting something up, uh, but just because, as I said, uh, 352 and Off the Record have been a real inspiration and resource for me here in Atlanta. 
So uh, it's great to have you here. I really, uh, you know, wish you the best with 352 and with Sports Card Investor. And I uh, hope we'll continue the conversation, uh, you know, between Emory and, uh, and Midtown. Absolutely. And uh, Shannon, I think what you're doing over there is wonderful and very excited to see where that leads as well. So uh, look forward to staying in touch and, and helping continue to support the program in the future. That's great. Thanks so much, Jeff. This was really fun. Take care, everybody. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Might Could, Stories of Innovation in the ATL. To hear additional episodes, search Might Could Stories on Spotify to find or subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the Hatchery, Emory University's Center for Innovation, visit hatchery.emory.edu.